Olive Branch podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anwar Mahajni. In this podcast, I interview activists with ties to Israel and Palestine who identify as peace activists and are working on ending Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories. Today, I interviewed Dr. Sarai Ahavoni, a senior lecturer at Ben-Gurion University and a feminist activist and scholar. Sarai, thank you very much for coming to speak to us today. I know we interacted a lot on Twitter, uh, but I don't think we really met in person, and I'm glad that we get to chat today. You, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing how things changed after COVID, <laughs> uh, but also technology allowed me to meet more people that otherwise I wouldn't be able to meet. Thanks for inviting me, and um, it's a great opportunity for having this conversation, right? I really, um, I'm really looking forward to speaking about my work and to um, share some of my thoughts with you and others, and um, hope the conversation is going to be interesting. Thank you. I'm sure it will be. Um, so I figured that I, maybe we can start out talking a little bit about your research. What kind, what type of research do you do? And then maybe we can move on to talking about how did you decide to do this type of research and why do you think it's important? Uh, well, that's a hard question. Um, <laughs> so I am a, a feminist scholar and I teach and work at the Ben-Gurion University of the Negev at the Gender Studies Program. And like many feminist scholars, I am very much all over the place in terms of my methods, the research methods and questions that I ask and kinds of um, projects that I engage in. But I think if, if I had to describe it, I would describe myself as a scholar of peace and security that is interested in the, the way Israeli women engage with conflict-related politics and resistance and activism in a more general sense. And I'm also a historian in training, so I always think about the historical processes that enable certain actions and certain modes of activism and, and the way women, especially and women activists are caught in certain historical moments, sometimes which they are not responsible for, right? And the way they engage with these historical moments, for example, um, what happens to feminist activists when there is war, what happens to them when they have to really figure out their response to um, militarization or to violence, what happens to them when, when they want to create a different future when they want to think about peace, when they try to work across divides. So these are some of the questions that I'm interested in, but I'm also some of the work that I've been doing has focused on the more general intersections of gender and international security. Um, so I've been doing a lot of work on the involvement of Israeli women in the official peace negotiations during the Oslo peace process as negotiators at the table. I've done some work on the impact of the ongoing conflict on women in terms of um, their personal lives, but also on um, the way women have been engaging with, with the conflict. So some of it involves 
uh, a long research on the way local women, on the local interpretations of international norms in the field of women, peace, and security. For example, Security Council Resolution 1325 uh, that focuses on, on women and conflict uh, zones and the way that Israeli women and Israeli um, governmental institutions have um, interpreted this resolution and the kinds of actions that were taken to actually implement the resolution in Israel. I've done other works on the impact of, of um, securitization and militarization on gender in Israel. For example, um, I've done a, a very interesting project on the visits of the US six fleets in Israel 20 years from 1979 to 2001. And I was interested in the ways that this foreign military presence had impacted you know, everyday life and including gendered experiences of ordinary people. So yeah, many, many projects. And um, maybe, um, maybe soon I'll, I'll talk a little, a little bit more about uh, the current big project that I'm doing on the feminist archives in Israel and uh, different ways to, to think about them. Mm -hmm. I need to visit the archives and talk more <laughs> about these things when I hopefully get to meet you when I come and visit. Um, so this is a great overview. Uh, maybe let's talk a little bit about, you You said that you're a scholar of peace and security and for people who don't understand the difference between peace and security, how would you kind of talk about the difference or define each one of them? So it, it is hard to differentiate between peace and security because um, they are really interconnected in many ways. Sometimes when um, activists talk about um, security. For example, when, when feminists talk about security, they really try to think about this concept from the perspective of, for example, of, of women who suffer various forms of insecurities, right? In their private lives and in, in the public spaces, but also um, some women, for example, in Israel, uh, Israeli-Palestinian women or Palestinian women in the occupied territories. So they experience different forms of insecurity. It could be in their home, in on the street, but also militarized forms of insecurity. So I think that when feminists think about the, the word security, they really try to think about it as a multi-layered concept that cannot relate only to national security or state security. And so, from this very complex interpretation of the term security, we can also infer a more complicated concept of peace when the word peace could mean in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and of course it could mean um, formal peace negotiations um, that may result in a peace agreement. And we know that formal peace negotiations usually are being conducted by, by very small groups, right? So this is not a, a very popular or broad process, but we can also think about peace as a way to kind of imagine transformation or imagine a different future. And that is a deeper meaning of peace as, as a possibility to change the world. And so when I, 
when I describe myself as a peace and security scholar, I actually don't want to differentiate between the two concepts, but I, 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 I want to endorse and um, adopt a complicated understanding of both the term security and the term peace. And I think that feminists have been doing a great job in unpacking the term security by showing how different kinds of insecurities are connected, right? So economic insecurity and job insecurity and body, bodily insecurity are sometimes deeply connected. And these might be exacerbated by armed conflict. We think about women who, who, are, who experience daily or monthly experiences of um, violence. It could be also you know, Jewish women who live in border zones. For example, we've done a lot of ethnographic study of um, the life experience, the everyday security experiences of Jewish women who live near the Gaza wall or outside of Gaza. And we've really, uh, seen the, the kind of long and deep trauma that they have been experiencing after two decades of being exposed to um, ongoing um, rocket attacks. So these women suffer from you know, insecurity that is caused by the ongoing conflict. But many of them are also deeply insecure in terms of um, you know, the economic situation or their personal lives. And so I really want to build on this deep understanding of what is insecurity to think about what does peace mean, right? How do these women, for example, imagine the future of their children? Can they think about their children as deserving a different life? And what does that take, right? What would be uh, what could happen for these children to actually have a different life? Yeah, so so I think that peace is, is really, um, in this sense, a, a huge challenge from a feminist perspective because usually women don't have enough power and they don't, they're not represented, they're almost not represented at all in, in, in peace negotiations and so these perspectives are very, very marginal when we think about formal politics. Thank you. Uh, and you know, like, I feel like since I started doing this podcast and started conducting these interviews, I had a very simplistic, even as a, a feminist scholar, of what peace and security mean. But now I think talking to a lot of radical activists who work on the ground, I, I developed a different understanding of what it means. And I think one thing that I now understand or I like to emphasize is that, you know, peace is just not the absence of threat, right? Peace should be about emancipation and justice. It's about creating sustainable institutions that will allow, you know, different sides to prosper and not about pacifying one side to satisfy the, uh, you know, the side of the powerful, right? Um, so I thought that was like a, that was one of the things that I really, really took with me from these interviews and I'll always like uh, view or understand peace and security in those terms because they make a lot of sense, right? It makes a lot of sense. Sorry, did you want to add anything? Yeah. 
So yes, I think it's a very, very good point. Um, how do we um, think about peace as a sustainable program? And um, what does it mean? What does it mean to achieve justice that will enable people to have a good life? <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and 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 I and I think that what we're hearing when we talk with activists is that they really don't want to compromise on their values, and they 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 want to bring to the public views that take into consideration multiple viewpoints and not only a very narrow kind of state-centered national security whatever perspective um, is out there right a more complex perspective of okay here are the issues we have to deal with them very very deeply right and i think this is um this is something that activists bring mm -hmm. and um, that government officials rarely acknowledge when they when they actually put on their suits and go negotiating mm -hmm. so i think this is fascinating to learn more about your research and i think i have a few more follow-up questions about your specific research and then maybe we'll move on to your activism afterwards so one of the questions i have for you about your research is it why why do you think it's important to study women's experiences, uh, you know, in the conflict? You know, when we talk, especially Israeli women, because when we talk about Israeli women, we usually, or at least the state, you know, when they, when you look at pictures from the IDF, they always show women serving in the IDF. It's kind of used um, as a way to show how Israeli women are, you know, equal or at a different standing in Israel from other countries in the Middle East. And I feel like I've seen so many promotional stuff about the IDF that included really good looking women uh, wearing the uniform. So I was wondering, why do you think it's important to study first Israeli women's experience, you know, in conflict, either as civilian or as women who have to deal with a militarized system and even engage and participate in a militarized system. Yeah, we know that um, women soldiers have been used and to brand a specific image of Israel as a strong and equal society. Now, uh, this of course is, 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 a, is a branding effort. And in, in reality, Israeli society like many other societies is, is, is very diverse. And it has different groups of women, right? Not all Israeli women serve in the military and some uh, wants to serve in the military and they cannot, for example, you know, um, religious younger women, they really don't have a choice because they are exempt as a group, especially Orthodox women uh, from um, not only going to the military, but from various other social activities because they are ultra-Orthodox women and they are part of a, of a group that is, is basically autonomous. And, but this is just one example for the things that people from the outside uh, don't always know about um, Israeli society. So yes, one of the things that I really find fascinating is this diversity and the creativity that local women have. So 
So every time I start a new project or I enter a field and then, you know, for example, I do a lot of um, interviews or field work, uh, ethnographic field work. So I actually go out and I participate in demonstrations or in conversations. And I try to focus and understand what are these women doing to capture their ways of, of um, solving problems. So for example, a few years ago, I started uh, following a group of um, activists that were working on uh, gun violence. And this group, which is still active, and it is a coalition that is called uh, the Gun on the Kitchen Table. This group started having a, what they called a uh, learning process. And so they, they met for about two or three years, once a month, to study together various aspects that relates to gun violence. Um, and, I, and I was with them. And I volunteered to write protocols and to help whatever um, I could help because I'm, um, this is part of my ethics as a scholar to bring back whatever I can to the groups that I follow. I was sitting with them learning about gun violence and we were having women from all over the world joining in through um, Zoom or whatever. And they were telling us about you know, initiatives from um, the US, from South Africa, from Latin America, even from, we even tuned into a woman who was in Myanmar and they were all um, telling us about the things that they've been doing in terms of, um, trying to um, work with victims of gun violence, trying to work on legislation, doing various um, educational projects. And this group was uh, a, a very interesting group because all these women were really kind of long-term long activists. And while it started as a Jewish group, it gradually became more and more um, Arab, Palestinian. And what happened was that these women were able to create a place for um, Arab Palestinian women in Israel who have never held uh, a weapon, a gun, a rifle, right? Because they don't serve in the military. But they were able to create a place for them to talk about guns, right? So how, how did you get to bring a woman who has never um, had a chance to be part of a military organization, but that her life is totally impacted by gun violence because there are a lot of illegal arms within, for example, Arab villages and um, you know crime or whatever. So these women are impacted by gun violence, but they've never had a chance to actually engage with weapons. And in this feminist process, they were able to learn about different ways to talk about weapons. And, and I think that after about four or five years, this group was able to produce amazing documents in terms of um, collecting data and sharing, sharing personal narratives and personal stories, demanding justice, going out to the streets and doing you know, just engaging in protests and demonstrations. So usually people just see uh, the end game, right? They see a woman who becomes a member of parliament or they see 
uh, community leader who is able to speak about the problems of the community. But these women, they usually don't come out of nowhere. When, when we have a strong women's movement and a feminist movement, we, I, this is what I've learned, we can actually understand the processes that make these leaders, that create these leaders and create leadership. And, you know, we, we need leaders. We need women to be out there to speak for others. And in deeply militarized societies or conflict societies, it is always harder for women to do this. So I think sharing these experiences and sharing the observations from projects like, like these are really important for other groups to learn from and to understand the amount of effort that is needed to bring change. Yeah, that's very fascinating. And I, I do like that, you know, when you talk about Israeli women, you're incorporating Jewish Israeli women and Palestinian Israeli women activism, you know, inside of um, what, inside Israel. Um, and gun violence is a very, uh, complicated issue and very prominent issue in the community. I am from Uman Faham, my family lives there. And, you know, the, the issue directly affects my family and people that I know. So yeah, it's a tough issue. And the funny yeah. thing, I think one of the things that is worth mentioning is the ties between the military and the guns in the community. Uh, Cause okay. a lot of people have done that. And also the Shabak and ties to these people who own guns with the revelations that, um, were exposed not long ago, right? Yeah, one of the things that the study group was was doing at a certain stage was to try and figure out where are these guns coming from. Mm -hmm. um, and so they were various um, attempts to understand mm -hmm. the sources of, of uh, these weapons. And it's true that many of these illicit weapons that are stored inside the Arab cities or villages come from the military, but then they are used, right, in different ways. Mm -hmm. And so, but others come from other sources. But one of the things that the group was doing was to try and understand what is happening, right? Mm -hmm. um, what, why, what is happening and what is the, the intersection between state discrimination, violence, right? And the history of, discrimination and violence. Mm -hmm. And for example, the, the economy and uh, impunity mm -hmm. and all of this, right? Connecting the dots. And that is something that maybe we as scholars, we can do it, but it's never enough. Many uh, communities and community organizers and um, you know, feminists, they, they also do this and they try to connect the dots to understand how to make change. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, you know, maybe, you know, that you probably know that in Umar Fahim, there is a group of uh, local women that have organized as, uh, I think, uh, Mothers Against, Mothers for Life, right? That's mm -hmm. the name of the group, Mothers for Life. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a group of local women from Umar Fahim uh, and other areas and other places in the triangle that are specifically working on the issue of ending gun violence, whatever uh, the reasons are. 
these women had the courage of going out because they were not alone, because there were other women who have been working on these issues for quite a while. Yeah. And of course, we can have a full podcast episode on motherhood and organizing, right? The, <laughs> the literature on motherhood and organizing, the feminist literature is very rich. Um, and I know like motherhood has been critiqued and also has been um, acknowledged as an angle for activism. Yeah, I think it's a comeback. I think we're seeing a comeback mm-hmm. uh, and with a twist. I think that uh, the old debates about motherhood and uh, political activism have changed. I think we're in, we're in a different place now. We're seeing a, a new phase of um, mother maternal activism and motherhood activism in, in Israel which is really fascinating. Um, and even in traditional society, motherhood is a very strong way to identify. It has, it comes with a moral authority <laughs> that, you know, oh. other identities don't, especially if you're a woman. And, you know, knowing from a Malfakim, being a mother, that's like very highly valued, right? So it is a, a, a great way to organize and kind of talk up share and talk about experiences in a way that relates to the larger community and hopefully some of these young kids will listen <laughs> yeah so i want us i mean i could talk about your research for a long time uh but i'm more curious about how how did you tie how do you tie this research to activism and i think you kind of started talking about how you go and attend demonstrations as part of your research but um kind of like how do you tie directly to activism that maybe is not just like you're not attending these demonstrations just to do research, right? Right. So being an insider scholar means that I, I, I never have the privilege of leaving the field, right? I, I live here and, and I never, I can never really say, oh, now it's time to go home or now it's time to to go back. So I think it's, um, it's a different way of thinking about research. It's um, trying to find spaces for critical thinking from within. How do I become um, a scholar and an activist? What is my role? Is, am I there to shed light to amplify voices of groups that are sometimes very marginalized? Am I there to just keep track, right? Um, Keep the history, keep memories, make sure that um, these activities are not forgotten, Um, which is something that I think is important that we do as scholars, uh, that we keep track and this is why I'm so interested in archives because I am. This is something that that I that academics could do very thoroughly. Just make sure that certain collections and certain facts and certain groups and certain people don't get forgotten. And and we know that many times you know women are those who would be the first to be erased out of history, especially if they're not. You know, if they're not in Israel, if they're not Ashkenazi women, right? If they're Mizrahi women, Ethiopian women, Israeli-Palestinian women, they 
could be forgotten quite easily. And so how do we make sure that their stories are remembered? So I, I tend to think about this as a, my responsibility as a local scholar to make sure that things are documented and that we can go back and find them. And also, it's also about teaching, teaching students, teaching, um, reading together um, texts that were written in various stages by the Israeli feminist and women's movement and peace movement, having access to these pasts that are not part of the um, kind of more um, mainstream history, um, you know, Israeli mainstream history in terms of what, what is being taught in, in high school or what, it, what, what can you read in a newspaper. Um, so it doesn't mean that these things never happen. There is um, the peace movement has a, has a history, women's peace activism has a history. So I try to, you know, I try to think of myself as a, as a keeper. And as time goes by, when I become older, this becomes more important for me. Because when I was younger, I was more engaged in, you know, everyday activism, like going to demonstrations, signing on petitions, doing workshops, going to um, whatever was needed. Even a lot of work, um, in terms of even legislation and stuff like that. So I did these things when I was doing my PhD and a little bit after that. And I felt that I was in history, right? I was doing it. But as time went by and I became more senior and I started to understand better, I think, certain patterns, then I, I also uh, started thinking about myself and my role as a documenter, as a person who, who keeps memory. And it's important because when you live in a place like Israel and Palestine, when time seems to, seems to stand, right, nothing is changing. And uh, people need hope and, and a sense of what has happened to us? Where have we come from? Where are we going to? Then I, I think um, scholars are needed to tell a story about you know, what has happened. And I, I do, yes, you know, archiving and telling the story is very important because a lot of things get lost, especially it, when it comes to the issues we're dealing with. As you said, you don't have the luxury to kind of move and say, oh, I'm going to disconnect myself from my research um, and like come back to the site again, like a lot of, you know, researchers are based in the U.S. or Europe or other places. Uh, because it's a constant life experience for you. And I think that's kind of a great way to talk about differences first between the various scholars who are studying these issues, the positionality as well, and also the responsibility of the researcher to the people, you know, we're studying, uh, us as researchers to the people we're studying, because it matters to us they are us we're not outsiders fully outsiders right and that makes the research it makes the research you know more interesting but we also have a stake in what we do and we're not fully doing it just for you know academic accomplishments at least i hope that's not the case right yeah totally and, it, and it's hard it's it's mm -hmm. very very hard because we have to um work 
according to academic standards that are not set by us, right? Because we know that um, the global academic world is really designed in Western countries. And so we, we have to publish in top journals and um, press. And then, but at the same time, we have our, our, I have my hand in the ground or my foot in the ground. And so it's, it's a big stretch. It's a huge stretch to do both at the same time, speaking with and to international and other scholars and explaining what is happening here. And at the same time, speaking with local groups and women who don't know anything about global politics and they really want to know and there's a lot, there's a huge burden here on, on local scholars. And I think this is something that is happening in, in many, many places, you know, where you have. I think also it's like specifically for scholars who are against what we're considering mainstream politics or who are challenging mainstream politics, right? Yeah, totally. Go on. <laughs> yeah, we see this, right? We see this in India and our colleagues working in, in places like India or in other Arab countries, um, Egypt and Turkey. And so, you know, on the one hand, writing on global politics, but at the same time doing it in places where access to knowledge is, is, is limited. And, and we have a, a very important social role that is sometimes really hard to accomplish because of censorship or backlash or you know, just conservatism or corruption that basically makes it very, very hard to be a feminist, right? Or a feminist mm -hmm. critical scholar or a peace, a feminist peace scholar. Um, mm -hmm. All of these labels that make it very hard to, mm -hmm. to continue to work. And this is why we, we don't have many feminist critical peace scholars in Israel because it's very, very hard to do this kind of work in Israeli academic institutions. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And I know, I remember um, the Middle East program at Ben Gurion got like a lot of professors there were attacked and I can't, it was when I was in Ben Gurion and later a few years after that, I can't remember the details of the incident, but I just remember it wasn't really a good time. Yeah, it's, 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 it's always, you always have to be on guard when you, um, when you're a critical scholar, I think also in the US, I guess, it's hard to be a critical scholar, but, um, mm -hmm. but we have to continue to do this, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, we, we have to. So I think that's fascinating. Uh, and we started kind of talking about, you know, the, part, the importance of the academic as an activist. And we talked about peace as well. So how do you envision kind of in an ideal world where there is a peace agreement and we reach an end to this constant cycle of violence, how do you envision that solution to look like? Well, well, I, I actually think that um, there are solutions. There are several solutions to the conflict in, 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 in here in Israel Palestine. And um, I am very pragmatic about this. I think that um, from a feminist perspective, no matter what would be the solution, whether it would be a two-state solution or a one-state solution, which I think are 
the two main options. I think that no one should compromise uh, democracy and equality and uh, full equality for women. And what I'm saying is that for me as a feminist scholar, it is important to stress that the actual political configuration of the solution, whether it would be a two-state solution or a one-state solution, is less important than the ability and possibility to achieve. I'd say when I use the word democracy, I actually think about a society where people have equal rights. Okay, like basic, basic rights, um, and that these are not being compromised by um, nationality religion and ethnicity, race, et cetera. And the reason that I'm worried is because, you know, I've been following the Abraham Accords that were signed, um, you know, last year between Israel and uh, the Emirates and Bahrain. And the accord, these accords are really alarming because they are um, based on religion as a common set of shared values, okay? and uh, the Abrahamic, the so-called Abrahamic religions. And this paradigm of um, religion as a common set of values is really anti-feminist <laughs> in many ways. And I'm worried about this. I think, I think that we, we should all, always be very, very alert about who is bargaining here, what are the deals that are being <laughs> discussed, and yeah, personally, you know, I, I come from a family who's, um, my family came from Iraq. My father is from Iraq. And um, I consider myself a person who's indigenous to the region and who's been part of this region. And I have a, a certain hope that um, our, this region, the Middle East, could become a stable region with peaceful relations between different you know, countries and different religions and different groups, and that women's rights will not be compromised in this process. So I know this really sounds like um, a vision that's impossible to achieve, but I think that if, if, we, if we put this on the table as something that we have to um, seek, uh, maybe in you know ten or twenty years, something can happen. Maybe even five. I don't know. If we have the uh, a brave, brave leaders somehow. Hopefully, women. Maybe we can do this. Yeah, thank you very much. And you know, with Abraham's with the Abraham Accords, we can talk a lot <laughs> about surveillance, the Pegasus program. You know how Ooh. the Saudi Arabia and kind of using the program to suppress their own citizens. <laughs> so it's just a whole thing of also tying these accords not to peace, but also domestic, you know, oppression at the domestic level of human rights activists in these countries. Yeah. Uh, religion is, yeah, and that religion is being used as a legitimizing mm -hmm. discourse, right? And this legitimizing discourse is just so dangerous. 
<laughs> and again, we could have a whole podcast episode on that <laughs> as well. <laughs> um, you started kind of talking a little bit about your own background and how that influenced kind of your perception of you know the region and your role in the region as a as somebody as somebody whose family comes from Iraq. Um, could you talk to me a little bit about that background and how that influenced, you know, you arriving at your feminist consciousness, at your research, um, and at your activism? Yeah. So I come from uh, my family. My, my mother is American. She immigrated to Israel and she married my father, who is an uh, older Iraqi immigrant, came to Israel in 1951. But because my mother came alone, and she kind of married into this Iraqi family. I consider myself Mizrahi. So that means that I didn't identify with Middle Eastern Jews and the heritage and the histories of this uh, specific uh, group. And I think that uh, because I also look very Mizrahi, I pass as Mizrahi and nobody actually knows that I speak English. <laughs> And so most of my life was shaped by the, the way that I look and the way that I've been treated in different places, including academia. Right. So we know that there is this um, structural um, discrimination in Israeli institutions uh, that impacts Mizrahi men and women and also Israeli Palestinians and others. And um, growing up, in a country that was um, very much dominated by um, Ashkenazi Jews, I think I had to develop some kind of um, perspective about my own identity as a Mizrahi and to politicize this identity in, in different ways. So what does it mean to be a Mizrahi woman? It means that, for example, my aunts were my grandmother, my grandmother never knew how to read and write. And my aunts never had access to education. And that I am the first person in my family to have a PhD. It means that my family is more religious than my friends, for example, who are Ashkenazi. It means that my father speaks fluent Arabic and that his best friends are, Arab, are Arabs, right? It means that um, I know certain things uh, that intuitively I know them that are basically part of Arab culture. And it also has um, a special meaning that relates to my personal journey into feminism. I got married when I was 23 which is quite young for um, my generation. And, and I think that I was lucky in a way that I got married early because then the, my family, they actually became disinterested in my professional path. They said, ah, you know, she got married now she can do whatever she wants. <laughs> and then I became a feminist scholar. And this is, you know, we call this the bargain or whatever the patriarchal bargain and the way women navigate and negotiate their roles in society. But having gone through this myself, I think that I have a lot of respect to women who are doing this now, who have no 
other way to figure out their personal lives, but to say, okay, I will do this and then I will be free to think or write whatever I want, right? But of course, I, I, I have to say that I, I have a wonderful partner and I love him very much. So this is of course not to say <laughs> that I got married because my family wanted me to do that. But I think that, yeah, um, these are my, part of my personal histories that I cannot undo, right? Say, yes, there was something there that there's certain gendered expectations that I, I wasn't able back then to criticize. And then my feminist kind of consciousness came up and that was very dramatic. And it is interesting, you know, because when we talk about conservatism and women's issues, we tend to always think of Arab women, of Muslim women, <laughs> but it's it's more complicated than that and common, you know, among various families in Israel, regardless of if they're Palestinian or Jewish. So it is, it's fascinating uh, to see like, yo, okay, she got married. Now we can do, I mean, luckily you got married to somebody that you love and you wanted to get married. It's not like you were pressured, but it is part of the, the patriarchal bargain as Kandyoti would say. And I feel like there are some similarities to where I had to compromise with my family in order to be able to do certain things that I want to do as well um, and maintain that relationship, right? Uh, because mm -hmm. you still value it. So it's, it's always interesting to draw these uh, similarities between Jewish and Palestinians inside the same country. Right? <laughs> this is great. And I thank you for sharing your family's background with us. Now, my next question, we talked a little bit about how hard it is, you know, to be a feminist activist and scholar. Well, a feminist scholar in Israeli academia and a feminist activist, <laughs> in Israel period, right? What kind of recommendation do you have for, you know, younger people, younger women who are just now, you know, thinking about their path and activism and how to engage and kind of they're worried about, you know, the backlash that they might face from family, from friends, from society, from institutions, right? Um, that value oh. service. Yeah, I guess so I have a few, I have a few tips. <laughs> The first is, don't be afraid. Because actually, in fact, we are stronger than what we think, especially when, when we're younger. My second tip is, speak to other people and especially try to find women in your situation. In whether they are in your age group or older to uh, consult with, to talk about your plans, to think through um, whether personal issues or political issues, take time to do this, take time to build a community. Don't be alone. This is my second tip because being an, uh, a scholar, a scholar activist or just an activist requires a lot of energy. And um, it's, it's just uh, impossible to do it by yourself. So try to find a good group of people, preferably a feminist group, to work together. The third thing is take time to rest. 
Uh, I know that is easy to say, but activism uh, could be very, very demanding. And it could carry a toll, especially if, um, if you live in a conflict society, especially if you are uh, experiencing violent or intense events. So sometimes activists feel burnout and despair. And if that's the situation, then just take time off, um, seek some support, or just do something fun. And enjoying, enjoying the journey is, is very, very important, even for those who engage in you know, justice and change. And, and the last thing is just um, to remember that it is very, very hard to change the world. So while we always need to find creative ways to do this and not give up, it's important to understand that if we don't succeed, it is not because of us, right? This conflict here or the ongoing occupation is something, for example, that you know Israelis and Palestinians have been trying to change for a long time. And the fact that the occupation is not ending is not because of them. It is because political elites especially in Israel, are not willing to engage in serious negotiations or to give up you know, the power and the privileges um, and the control that this um, ongoing occupation actually brings. So it's very important to understand the, the limits, I guess, of, of, of action and to know that, that you know, sometimes um, the situation could be ripe for change and dramatic change. And sometimes it's just very, very frustrating. So these are some of the tips. I probably could think of more, but. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I always give you time toward the end to add anything. Um, so I wanna thank you very much for agreeing to be interviewed for, you know, the podcast, sharing your research or your background with us. I don't know if you wanted to add anything before we close. Well, no, it was really great um, having this conversation. Thank you so much for um, hosting me here on the podcast. And I'm, I'm looking forward to listening to the other conversations uh, and to uh, kind of get to know the tapestry of, you know, voices that you're kind of showing all of the listeners. So thank you very much for doing this. Thank you. And I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. Um, of course, as you always uh, expect, you'll have a new episode every two weeks on Friday. Bye.